The white skin made the Irish eligible for membership in the white race. It did not guarantee their admission. They had to earn it. The powers that be trying to pit groups against each other along racial lines. And if we don't recognize them as patterns, we're doomed to repeat them. Hi, I'm Danielle Romero, and I'm so glad that you're here with me again on my channel, where I explore questions of hidden history, ancestry, and genealogy. Today, I want to talk about the experience of Irish immigrants coming to America and how they went from being classified as barbarians to being white. My great-grandfather, John Donnelly, was the son of an Irish immigrant who was born in Belfast, Ireland, who came over to New York City in 1881. My great-grandfather, John Donnelly, a plane engineer, was sent to Monroe, Louisiana. While he was there working, he met my great-grandmother, Lola, and they got married. My Irish great-grandfather was a little bit of a renegade for his time. His own family rejected Lola for not being white. He married her anyway. The story of how the Irish became white in America is bittersweet. My research is not to create victims or to create the us versus them. I love America. But if we want a better nation tomorrow, we need to understand why we have the kind of mindsets that we have today around race. I think America is extremely divided on race. It's to highlight the mercurial nature of racial politics here in America. Let's go to Ireland and understand why the Irish were leaving in droves for the new country. Two groups of Irish. There was the Scots-Irish, from my understanding, and then there was the Southern Irish, who were not Protestant, and they were Catholic. They were not allowed to hold commission in the army. They couldn't own a horse that was worth more than five pounds. They weren't allowed to study law or medicine, and they couldn't speak or write in Gaelic, or play Irish music. The destructive consequences of the systematic oppression, as the Irish were losing their civil rights, their political agency, and economic opportunities through discriminatory laws, set the stage for their arrival in the United States. It's crucial to note that the British government, though, aimed to suppress the Irish people and their religion by creating this subordinate social class within their own country. The Great Hunger, also known as the Irish Potato Famine, was a period of extreme starvation in Ireland beginning in 1845. It was caused by a pathogen that kind of rendered the potato crop just completely inedible. The Irish were extremely dependent on potatoes. Actually, I read one source, I think from the Library of Congress, that said the average uh, Irish peasant at that time was consuming between 11 and 14 pounds of potatoes a day. The British government, which ruled over Ireland at this time, neglected the crisis. They were exporting food out to England, and they were enforcing a real laissez-faire capitalism, and they were prohibiting government aid to Ireland. The head of the administration for famine relief during the Great Irish Famine was a man named Charles Trevelyan. His whole job was to administer relief during the famine. Well, here's how he viewed the famine. Quote, the judgment of God sent the calamity to teach the Irish a lesson. That calamity must not be too much mitigated. The real evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, turbulent character of the Irish people. Ireland's population was nearly halved between the one million that died during the famine and the two million who fled the country for opportunity. Many of those refugees headed to the United States. They boarded cargo ships with little to no resources, and they were living in dark, cramped quarters, no clean water, not enough food. Disease and death were obviously rampant above what some called coffin ships, and nearly a quarter of the 85,000 passengers who left Ireland in 1847 for North America never reached their destination. 
In the late 18th and 19th centuries, while Britain was colonizing Ireland, the new American Republic itself was struggling to establish herself as a secure, self-sufficient nation. In 1798, the U.S. Congress passed the Alien Acts, which reflected the anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiments that were just so prevalent at this time. Who counted as white? African Americans were viewed as unable to be autonomous or vote responsibly in this republic. And the same kind of beliefs were also applied to European immigrants who were coming over, albeit with some differences. The characterization of European immigrants was focused primarily on character, imparted by nationality and religion, whereas for African Americans, they believed that these undesirable characteristics, characteristics were innate and immutable. According to this belief, a European immigrant with poor character or the wrong religion, like a Catholic, could be possibly molded to become an American, whereas the African American could not. A Cambridge historian named Charles Kingsley wrote a letter to his wife while he was in Ireland in 1860. Charles Kingsley was a friend of Charles Darwin, which I think is pretty evident when you hear his quote describing the Irish he saw. Quote, I'm haunted by the human chimpanzees I saw along that hundred miles of horrible country. To see white chimpanzees is dreadful. If they were black, one would not see it so much. The Irish were thought to be the non-white missing link between the superior European and the African. In the popular press, the Irish were depicted as subhuman. They were carriers of disease. They were drawn as lazy, clannish, unclean, drunken brawlers who wallowed in crime and bred like rats. Most disturbingly, the Irish were Roman Catholic, and they were coming to an overwhelmingly Protestant nation, and their devotion to the Pope made their allegiance to the United States suspect. Many Irish immigrants found themselves at the bottom of the occupational ladder, taking on very dangerous and menial jobs that other workers avoided. In fact, there was a saying that I saw in the Library of Congress. It said that uh, an Irishman was buried under every tie during the dangerous constructions of the railroads. The Irish were also brought to New Orleans in large numbers to build ship canals. New Orleans was really unique because it drew heavy from um, Irish immigration because of the peculiarities of the cotton trade. So all the cotton dates that were using enslaved labor lining the Mississippi, all of that cotton was sent downriver to New Orleans, where it would be loaded onto these sailing ships, and then it would be sent up to New England's textile mills. Irish peasants who were unfamiliar with American geography were often told that New Orleans was near New York. And so once they arrived in Louisiana, they could arrange travel to join their families in New York or Boston. Even though Irish labor was more expensive to hire per day than the upkeep of the cost of an enslaved person, an enslaved person represented capital to the owner. Water work was so dangerous, men would often drown or get sick and die from the diseases in the swamps. If an enslaved person drowned, an owner lost capital. If an Irish laborer died, on the other hand, the saying was, they could be replaced easily. This competition really heightened this, these class tensions. And the Irish were often antagonized by groups such as the American Protective Association and the Ku Klux Klan, who were adamantly against everything Catholic. Tensions between Protestants and Catholics found their way into these United States cities, and the verbal attacks often led, as it always does, to mob violence. During the Bible riots of 1844 in Philadelphia, Mobs set fire to churches and immigrant homes, killing 13 people. Anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiments in the 1840s produced groups such as the Nativist American Party, which fought foreign influences and promoted traditional American values and ideals. American Party members earned the name the Know-Nothings because their standard reply to questions about their procedures and activities was, I know nothing about it. Now, in the early 19th century, the Irish immigrants 
encountered African-American slaves here in America. Now, Ireland, the country, was staunchly abolitionist. They were against slavery, but Irish immigrants to America were almost universally anti-abolitionist, and they supported the pro-slavery Democratic Party. Many Irish saw Abraham Lincoln for all his generous words about immigrants as a frontman for the know-nothing bigotry. This stark contrast caused tension between Irish kin groups in America and those who were still in Ireland back home, highlighting this commodification of American whiteness. Daniel O'Connell, who was a prominent Irish figure who fought against British colonial oppression in Ireland, condemned the Irish-American support of slavery, but he was met with rejection. The issue of slavery was so divisive that it caused hostility among a people who were once united in their desire for Irish independence from Britain. I think the powder keg moment is the conscription act of 1863, and it just exacerbated these tense relationships because this act made white men between the ages of 20 and 45 years old eligible for draft by the Union Army. But African-American men were not drafted or otherwise forced to fight. White men with money could bribe doctors for medical exemptions, legally hire a substitute, or get out of it some other way. But those who were less affluent couldn't afford to pay for deferments. And the, in the inequities of the draft eligibility between the African-Americans, the moneyed whites, and the working-class whites, many who were Irish-American, increased racial tensions. In July of that year, a mob protesting the draft formed in New York, and the riots that followed destroyed entire blocks of businesses and homes. Now, several cities suffered draft riots as well, but New York City experienced the largest incident. More than 100 people were murdered by the angry mob, which was burning down the draft office, killing police officers and well-dressed whites, and killing African-American bystanders. African-American residents beaten or lynched. The riot involved white workers, many including Irish-Americans, the riots continued for two more days, but Union soldiers and regiments eventually brought an end to the violence. And I actually, I, I have to check, but I think President Lincoln actually had to call uh, troops from Gettysburg to come suppress these riots. In a pamphlet that was published after President Lincoln's election, the authors made some truly reprehensible claims um, of the Irish, labeling them as, quote, inferior to other white Americans, and if they were, quote, more brutal than African Americans. In 1864, this pamphlet, the Miscegenation Manifesto, which was called The Theory of the Blending of Races, was published, which it claimed that interracial marriages would ensure the curve between African Americans and Irish Americans. The manifesto was a hoax cooked up by two Democratic journalists who were seeking to discredit the um, Republican President Abraham Lincoln as a, quote, race mixer. The hoaxers, one of them who was born in Ireland and was a member of a Protestant religious sect, made a special play on the race marginalization of the Irish. They hoped to mobilize the Irish vote against Lincoln by exploiting this deep-seated fear the Irish had of losing their place in America's racial hierarchy. Pamphlet attempted to use language of social science to justify these claims in an attempt to impugn the Irish, even talking about the, the skull of the Irish and compared to other European groups. Now, the Irish have been repeatedly denounced during the Civil War era as inferior to other white Americans, and the pamphlet had flatly said, quote, the Irishman was, quote, originally of a colored race, a more brutal race, and lower in civilization than the Negro, unquote. It's important to note that this pamphlet was not an isolated incident, but just a larger pattern of the powers that be trying to pit groups against each other along racial lines. It's worth remembering, too, that many states had laws in place up until the 20th century that banned inter interracial marriages. 
I've actually never found a legal marriage license for my great-grandfather, John Donnelly, and my great-grandmother, Lola Perrault. The no Irish need apply signs and advertisements and songs provide evidence of the discrimination and prejudice faced by the Irish in America. The Chicago Tribune published this piece in 1855, quote, Who does not know that the most depraved, debased, worthless, and irredeemable drunkards and sots which curse the community are the Irish Catholics, unquote. The historical context prompts the question, how did the Irish, once viewed as non-white, become white in the United States? This is not to create a new group of victims and say, look how, look how bad America treated the Irish, look how bad America treated all of these different groups, but to take a step back and be like, are we, are we repeating this over and over again? Are we falling into these, this racial ploy of seeing each other in these binary groups? Well, some, some historians say that the Irish leveraged their political power, assimilated into American society, particularly using civil service jobs. For instance, at the outset of the first wave of Irish immigration in 1840, there were very few Irish police officers in New York City. However, by the end of that year, Irish officers constituted over a quarter of the police force. And by the end of the century, over half of the city's police officers and more than 75% of the firefighters were Irish. Additionally, Prosecutors, judges, prison guards, and other civil service jobs. According to historian Matthew Fry Jacobson, this allowed the Irish to become a visible part of American society, occupying positions of power and contributing to the public good as civil servants. This increase in representation allowed Irish Americans to portray themselves as patriotic, as selfless civil servants, which was a marked shift from their earlier characterization as uncivilized barbarians. It's notable that now, the annual St. Patrick's Day parades in many cities celebrate police and fire departments, reflecting this historical trend. No longer embedded in the lowest rung of American society, some Irish unfortunately gained acceptance in the mainstream by dishing out some of the same bigotry towards newcomers that they had experienced. County Cork native and working men party leader Dennis Kearney, for example, closed his speeches to American laborers with his rhetorical signature, quote, Whatever happens, the Chinese must go, unquote. Kearney was a California labor leader from Ireland who was active in the late 19th century, and he was known for his anti-Chinese activism. Kearney and his compatriots overlooked the moral of their own narrative. While the Irish did leave a significant mark on the United States, the reverse was also true. The anxieties of the nativists did not materialize, and instead the influx of the Irish immigrants and their descendants has bolstered the country. We're better for it. Presently, I think 32 million Americans trace lineage to Ireland, including myself. And the once scorned Irish are now celebrated on St. Patrick's Day, a day when everyone is Irish. And I wanted to end with a quote that I found. It was an interview with an Irish-American man a couple years ago. Um, his family came over from Ireland, but he was born here. And he explains in the interview about his family uh, not really identifying as Irish. His grandmother and mom, he said, really wouldn't give him any um, information about his, his Irish ancestry. And this is what he said, quote, they said, that's not important. We're Americans. I, with my mother and grandmother, had a fairly heavy Irish dialect, and I worked very hard to get rid of it. I'm sorry I did it. You want to fit in. They never talked about being Irish. The history of Irish immigration in the United States serves as a reminder of the power of immigration to transform both the immigrant and the hosting society. Like I've said before, this is not about pointing fingers and saying or, or, or looking to also get a victim card. I think this is about looking 
uh, to the past and saying, we've seen these patterns over and over and over again. And if we don't recognize them as patterns, we're doomed to repeat them. As a proud American of multi-ethnic background, to kind of look at this question dead on and say, who gets to count as American and how has that changed over time and why?